I'm Sean O'Banion. And I'm Shannon Mullen. This is Character, a conversation about actors, their craft, and some of their unforgettable roles in movies and shows we love. Alana Ubach finds something to love about every character she plays, whatever their background or ideology. From a curvy Latina housekeeper in Meet the Fockers to a controversial Fox News celebrity in Bombshell, then there was that ditzy sidekick of Harvard's unlikeliest law student in Legally Blonde. Alana's just as unrecognizable as a raunchy single woman looking for love in her 40s on The Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce as she is in Disney Pixar's groundbreaking animated film Coco, voicing the role of a stubborn, broken-hearted Mexican grandmother. She's been acting for most of her life. With a focus on her work that makes her a true scene stealer and range that can leave you as breathless as her sense of humor. It's such a pleasure to say, Alana Ubach, welcome to Character. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to talk to you. It is great to be here. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I I read this New York Times review. I thought this would be a good place to start of, of the one woman show that you did in 2008, Patriotic Bitch in New York at the Clerman. Oh, yeah. I feel like it showcases the versatility that we want to talk to you about. So this play revolves around Yolanda Rodriguez, a Mexican ladies room attendant. And the review lists the other characters that you play as follows. A fashion conscious Fox News broadcaster, a soft spoken Iranian maid of honor, a cold hearted coke snorting bride to be a born-again Bible-verse-citing exercise guru, a misguided American Idol contestant, and a Middle Eastern rapper. <laughs> wow. That's what I said. I haven't read that review in a long time. How did you, who are you? How did you get so versatile? Where did you come from? So by way of giving us your background, how did you become this performer who can do all of that in one woman show? My father had a huge, very thick Puerto Rican accent. And my mother was uh, uh, Mexican from Tijuana. And so I was always um, making fun of his accent when I was growing up. And it, it, I just started mimicking. Um, it, that's really, I, I love mimicking. I love um, listening to different voices. It just, it, it's something that has turned me on from the time I was like five, six, seven years old. I love to mimic. I couldn't find out exactly where you went through, you know, grade school and high school and and um and into studying acting. I couldn't find much about that online. So can you can you fill that blank in for us? I was uh, born and raised in Downey. I went to Montessori school and then <laughs> uh, to St. Mark's Episcopal um, from fourth grade to eighth grade. And you know, by the time I was thirteen, I knew that I wanted to start acting professionally. And it's easy to find an agent and act professionally when you live in Los Angeles. I mean, I was I was, I was a twenty five minute ride from all of the auditions on Ventura Boulevard, right? So, um, I I told my mom and dad, and of course they were immigrants, and so it's it's very easy to persuade immigrant parents to you know believe what you're saying. And and I was like, mom, dad, you know, if, if I want to do this professionally, then I have to go to a school that's going to allow me to, to work. And they said, um, is college out of the question for you? And I was like, no, 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 no. College isn't out of the question, but I know what I want to do. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I knew I wanted to act from the time I was like five, six years old. My mother and father used to go to Vegas on the weekends and they'd take me and my sister with them. And we would go and see all of these dinner shows like Captain and Tennille and the Osmonds and the Jackson five and, and uh, Wayne Newton and Charo. And I, I just couldn't believe that these people up there did anything else. I thought that they were put in boxes 
and 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 you know put away on a little shelf and then wound up again for for the performance that night. So I couldn't <laughs> believe that these people were actually real that they went to the bathroom. Even I would ask my mom, "Did they go pee?" Like, of course they go pee. They 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 rehearse the hell out of this stuff. They work very hard to be up there. And so when when I was, I, I just thought, oh wow, if if, if someone can make a living doing this, oh, I'm in, I'm in. I don't care what I end up being. I'll, I'll be a showgirl. I'll be a, a you know some, some singer in a lounge. I'll, I'll wear a chicken suit, stand on a corner, and and you know uh, toss around a, 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 an insurance sign. I don't care, but I've got to do something like that. I want to be a freak and I want to get paid for it. <laughs> what kind of jobs did you have that would qualify as that? Did you ever get any jobs like that? When I was a kid, no. I, I was. Um, it was all about school. They, my mom saw this ad in the LA Times for this young people's program at the Lee Strasberg Institute. And so Lee Strasberg, you know, he's he's sort of known for- Legendary. He's legendary. And my mom was like, oh my God, he 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 coached out Pacino and, and, and Marilyn Monroe, Alana, this is probably where you should be. I was like, okay, that sounds great. So I would, I, there were summer camps at the Lee Strasberg Institute. And so uh, I, I was enrolled when I was 10. And so I would, we would put on shows every 12 weeks. And so, you know, I, I just started performing and I thought, wow, um, there was an agent scout in the audience one, one uh, night. And, um, and then I was introduced to a child agency and then I just started going on auditions that I never booked. I never booked anything. So did your, had your family, I mean, Downey is, it's close to LA, but it's not close, close, you know? So did did your family move closer to where all this stuff was going on so that you could pursue it? Not at all. My mom and dad were business owners. They had this uh, lithography shop in downtown LA that they owned and, you know, they were used to the schlep. I mean, sometimes if they worked like they'd throw me in a taxi, <laughs> just like, you know, I'd be taking taxis to auditions and they'd say, tell them to keep the meter running and that you'll be right back. So, I mean, you know, and they'd call the taxi company and give them their credit card info or whatever. This was, it, they, they knew that it was something that I really wanted to do. And they saw me working so hard at it. As immigrants, when you see your kid finally, you know, teaching themselves the work ethic that you've always known, you're you're gonna support it. You know, I, I think they were they were excited about the fact that I wanted to be an actress. It's so American. It's such an American <laughs> thing. Yeah. Right? Especially if you're living in a town where, you know, Hollywood, your name and lights is you know, 25 minutes off the freeway from where you live. <laughs> so it made a lot of sense for me to, to end up acting. So you, so you grew up with this, with this exposure to all of this. And then, you know, you're, you're preteen and you're kind of out there starting to do it. Yeah. At what point did you and your family realize that, oh, they, this, this is actually a way, like you are going to be able to make a living from this? Well, once I got an agent, you know, then the possibilities were, they were a reality. You know, the, the agent sort of says, well, I'm going to send you out on things and, and this could pay a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. And I always got feedback. She was so over the top. <laughs> She's like 13 going on 60. And I looked a lot older. I had like really like my features were too big for my little body. And it just, I had too much hair. I, I was just <laughs> a lot. So by the time I was like, 16 and I was driving myself to these auditions, there was this newfound confidence, I think, where I was a lot more comfortable in my skin. And then I started booking 
And that was, that was basically it. It was, uh, you know, it took about three, four years for me to get the hang of the whole audition process. There's an art to that in a way. Have you, I guess in your whole career, have you been able to sort of put down the nervousness of an audition? Or is it something that, that you still deal with at this point? It's something I still deal with. It's, you know, it's, it's never easy. <laughs> in fact, the more you know, the harder it gets, in my opinion. I think because you, you know, you're able to sometimes predict who they're going to cast, what it's going to be, what they're looking for. And especially when you know you are not that, it's very hard to not want to fit into that little peg. How much are you auditioning still at this point in your career? That's a good question. I, I mean, some, um, it's been more offers, but you still have to do a Zoom meeting. They want to know that you're not out of your mind. Um, and I am. <laughs> um, and um, they just want to make you're, you're a responsible human being, um, that you will show up on time, et cetera. Um, so it's, it, it has been more offers lately, but just lately, you guys, like just these past two years. Before that, I mean, I, I had to audition for everything, everything. And I was always put through the ringer. I mean, if you're not a household name, they bring you in and they have to see what you look like, your take on the character, et cetera. Because I think there have been in the past, they were there were so many offers given to, you know, actors and then they're on the they're on set and 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 they're not exactly what they thought they were gonna be. And it's it doesn't work, you know. Assuming that you're saying you are not a household name, would you wanna be? Gosh, you know what? That's that's a really good question. I I, I sure wouldn't mind having Kristen Wiig's money. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about this a lot because we're fascinated by that. And that's sort of how this show came into existence. How do, how do certain actors do that and others don't? And, you know, the grass is always greener and all that. But, I mean, sure. money aside, would you, would, would you want that? Or do you like being able to disappear? I, you know, it's, it's really funny. I guess if you ask any actor, they never exactly plan to be in, to to have the career that they have. You know what I mean? Um, When I first started out, I I didn't know I was funny. I was just wanting to be, you know, kind of a theater actor. And so when I'd go in, I guess even when I was dramatic, I came across as funny to people. And I thought, oh, oh, I, I guess I'm funny. And so, you know, it sort of fell into it. It's, it's um, you, you know, you never really know what you're going to be submitted for. But all I really wanted to do, and I think this had a lot to do with enrolling in such a serious institute at, at such a young age is I just wanted to do really good work. That was That was like all it was about. And it was how I was trained. It was my teachers always sort of instilled in all of us. It's all about the work. It's nothing else. And if if you can be unrecognizable in every care in every part you do, you you've succeeded. So in my brain, as a child, I thought, oh, so that's that's what I'm supposed to do. But I think it, had I not gone to Strasbourg and I just started going on auditions, I, it would all it, it would be about wanting to be famous and rich and et cetera. Well, it's funny because we, you know, I'll talk to young actors, young performers sometimes. And 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 uh, so many of them these days, even more than ever, maybe because of the YouTube phenomenon or whatever, seem to be fixated on the idea of being famous. And I'm always saying you you literally have no control over that. Yeah. The only thing that you have control over is the work. So you have to make it about the work, even if 
you know, your ultimate desire is to be famous. Um, and, and again, what Shannon was saying is, you know, the way that we come to this show is we're so fascinated by actors who you can watch in two shows on the same night and go, wait a minute, that was the same person. Um, and, and again, to us, you're one of those people where we sort of, we were choosing which uh, projects to talk about. And we're like, we're just like, this is amazing. I mean, she's not only visually, but vocally, obviously, in, in terms of your voiceover work, you change constantly. And it's amazing. And, and completely. Just yeah. completely. <laughs> Bless you guys. Bless you. So we're going to jump uh, from, from your teen years and, and auditioning to Meet the Fockers, which was one of the first times that we saw you. Uh, everybody probably knows, but Meet the Fockers is a sequel to Meet the Parents, the massive hit with uh, Ben Stiller, Robert De Niro. It's directed by Jay Roach, who we'll circle back to, written by John Hersfeld. Um, and John Hamburg, who's now directing other things, wrote the screenplay. So this is you, Ben Stiller, Terry Polo, Robert De Niro, Blythe Danner, Barbara Streisand, for God's sakes, Dustin <laughs> Hoffman. I mean, just talk about a bucket list, right? So in this in this sequel, uh, Greg Fokker or Gay Fokker, as he's also known, <laughs> hey Lord, yeah, takes his soon-to-be in-laws to meet his parents, and all hell breaks loose. And you play. Isabel Villalobos, the Fokker family's former housekeeper, who is now their caterer, <laughs> uh, who, who uh, makes quite an entrance with her famous Fokker fondue. Right. You mentioned that you never thought you were funny, but here you are getting this big universal movie with a lot of funny people being counted on to to sort of match that level of whatever they're they're going to be doing. I knew I wanted to be a character actor. So when I, when this, um, when I was submitted for this particular role, the only person I knew who reminded me of this character was my Tia Flora. My Tia Flora was very vivacious and she'd wear her red lipstick at eight o'clock in the morning and she was always um, done up. And she was very, um, very warm and very um, outgoing. And I remember her at, family gatherings and funerals and holidays. And she was always the life of the party. So I thought, oh, okay. So this character is all about love. Hmm. I mean, everything that comes out of her mouth is totally positive, you know, positive and loving and warm and sweet. I'm going to be my Aunt Flora. Let's see if this works. And it worked. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you went to audition for that, they didn't sort of say like, oh, we think it's this. Or did you just kind of present your aunt immediately? Immediately, because in spite of it being a very different storyline, and I don't know if I can talk about this, but this character uh, played a very important role in Dustin Hoffman's character's life. The truth comes out. Yeah, there was a whole backstory <laughs> where he had brought all of these you know, illegal immigrants across the border, and he had helped them get jobs, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I was one of them. So, you know, we had a lot of history together. So th this is a relationship. This is about family. This is love for the family that, that has taken you in from the time you were young and illegal and coming across the border and wanting to, you know, make a better life for yourself. So you have to have some kind of real foundation and then you can be funny. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, there's got to be something real for you to fall back on before you can just be funny. Otherwise, you're coming across as a stand up comic, which is absolutely fine. But there's got to be a little more behind that. I mean, you know, the players I was playing with, they 
they don't fuck around, obviously. One thing that I loved about um, Jim Hirschfeld as a writer for writing Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers is you have these very silly situations, but the characters themselves are quite real. You know, they're, they're, they're very much believable in what they do and they're very grounded in their beliefs. Yeah. So that, you know, anything is possible with these very grounded people, (laughs) you know, it's just, they're put in these really crazy situations, but they deal with them in a very human way. And it's, it's, it's tricky comedy. It's very tricky. So it almost sounds like you're talking about finding the drama at the roots of comedy in a way. Is that fair? Yeah. I remember watching Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when I was a little kid. And I thought, oh, you know, John Candy, he's so funny. Of course, he's he's so sweet and adorable and endearing. Mm. And then at the end, you find out that his wife has been dead the entire time and he's been lying about it. Spoiler alert, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. I mean, but, you know, there, there's drama behind every comedy. I, maybe that's what gets you to the humanity of it. I'm, oh, yeah, sure. That's one of my questions. I mean, how do you do it when when you're not supposed to take it seriously? How do you take it seriously? Is a, is a question that I, I just infinitely have about satire and comedy. Oh, wow, sure. It's, it, it, there's, there's always, and, and in dramas, there's always so much, you know, comedy that you can find in it. Because if you can't, I mean, you know, it's, it's people watching it are just going <laughs> to... They, they, they're going to need Zoloft. <laughs> so, okay. So given that range that you've done, would you consider yourself a comedic actor who does drama or a dramatic actor who does comedy or? It's always different. Whatever, um, whatever material I'm given, I have to love the character. If you don't love the character, you're not going to do a good job. I guarantee you. So you have to really love whatever you're doing or figure out a way to really stand up for them. Right. So if you're standing up for them, you're standing up for a piece of humanity, whether it's a drama or a, a comedy. It's it's really standing up for that underdog or that winner or that person that's always hated. Why are they always hated? You know, maybe they were never understood, but you always have to understand everyone. It's sympathy for the devil, sympathy for the good, having sympathy and empathy for everyone not really as a comedy or a drama but really standing up for what that character believes in and that i think is what opens up the hearts and minds of the viewers you know opening them up to a feeling that they've never really had before or they've suppressed or they've been taught to suppress yeah and i I feel like that is my job i often say that this art form is a is a stealth delivery system for empathy yeah Oh, what a beautiful, well put, my friend. It's a way to let people experience other people's lives, you mm-hmm. know? And, and yeah. There's something you just said that leads me to to the next project, which is, you know, you said you have to love a character. You have to find a way to love this character in order to play it. Um, and the next film we're going to talk about is, is your reuniting with Jay Roach years later on Bombshell. Yeah. You have 15 years between these two projects. The first one, obviously, just straight comedy. He, in the intervening years, Jay Roach had gotten a little more political. He'd done Recount. He'd done the, you know, the Sarah Palin HBO series, limited series. And so you're you're making a very different project here. And for people who don't know, this is Bombshell. came out in 2019. Uh, Jay Roach, written by Charles Randolph. It has it absolutely stacked cast. It's Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie, John Lithgow, Kate McKinnon from SNL, Rob Delaney, um, and a supporting cast, including you, of so many greats, Allison Janney, Mark Duplass, Malcolm McDowell, Connie Britton, 
Brooke Smith, Richard Kind. I mean, it just it's it's a murderer's row of fantastic performers. Yeah. You're playing uh, Judge Janine Pirro. She's a former state judge and prosecutor turned Fox News personality. Um, and basically, you don't have a lot of scenes, but, you know, you're you're <laughs> an antagonist for Charlize's character, Megyn Kelly. Yeah. And at one point, you're literally like threatening her around a vending machine. So coming into that kind of role, when you say you have to love a character, you have to find a way to love the character. How do you bring yourself to a dramatic role like that? If you really strip the movie, if you really strip the movie down, what is the movie really about? It's about opinions. It's having a really strong opinion about something. You want to be heard. And if you're not being heard, that is abuse. And so I thought, wow, okay, Janine Pirot was um, a Lebanese girl who grew up in upstate New York. What was that like? She was Catholic, Lebanese. She was probably the only Lebanese Catholic in her school. What did that feel like? probably surrounded by a bunch of, you know, Irish kids and Italian girls. Um, she, I'm, I'm sure she always felt a little misunderstood from the time she was a kid. So to want to be a judge, to want to be in control of things, what did you, what were you not in control of as a kid? And I think her mother was a, a model apparently, and her father was a businessman. So the combination obviously made Jan, little Janine Pierrot. I think for, I have very strong beliefs about things. I, I can't. I can't believe um, uh, higher education is is not free. I, I just can't believe it. I can't believe how uh, how costly education can be. And I sort of ran with that belief as Janine Pirot. Um, you know, when when the children get were getting separated at the borders, I was a wreck for three or four days. And I thought, what if someone thought that that was correct, that that was the way to do it? How we were going to resolve this issue was to separate children from their parents at the border. And so, you know, I looked at Charlize Theron's character as someone believing that. So it really helped me <laughs> as, as Janine Pirot to really have an opposing belief. Like, how can you possibly think that? I mean, that's a lot of equanimity. <laughs> It just it just keeps you, uh, you know, at the end of the day focused, you know, because it is. Would I do I believe in Janine Pirro's uh, beliefs? Absolutely not. I'm extremely liberal to a fault. I mean, I I I, I stalk Bernie Sanders online, so <laughs> you know, you just have to have a strong belief, you know. She's still at Fox News. Um, is she? Yeah. Yeah. One of the few women in the movie who does not change her position during the course of the story and s seemingly by her presence still at Fox, maybe still hasn't. You're talking a little bit about how you got into her head. Uh, she stands out not just for her beliefs in the movie, but because she physically looks a lot different than all of the other, you know, the blonde bombshells, right? Literally the three of them side by side in the elevator was the poster. So she breaks the pattern she stands out um and and also because she's so well known at least by the fox audience it's a really important look to get right so i mean can you tell us a bit about melting and disappearing into that character that transformation they uh they they def they gave me that long bob dyed my hair black i had to wear brown contacts i think the contacts really gave it what it needed um you know, having light eyes and playing that character, there was something a little, it wasn't working. And then obviously they were like, okay, let's get you really dark brown contact lenses. 
So once I put those puppies in, boom, we're like, oh, there she is. All right, let's do this. <laughs> Slap on that eyeliner and away we go. Yeah, no, it's another, yet another stunning transformation in a film full of them. I mean, you know, Kazuhiro and his team, uh, I think Lucy Sibick, and I think they won the Oscar for it. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Uh, Charlize Theron was wearing 15 prosthetics on her face. Wow. Wow. And they had that down to a science the way they were they 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 put all those prosthetics on. I think she was in makeup for maybe probably like 2-3 hours at the most tops. If you didn't know that that was Charlize, you would think it's Megan Kelly. It's just insane what they did. With her voice too, same thing. I mean, just all of you. Yeah. I- <laughs> you're generally your complexion is a bit lighter and and she looks like somebody who spends a lot of time in a tanning bed, I guess, or something. <laughs> I, when I first auditioned for her, I went to a tanning bed the night before I went and got a spray tan. Um, <laughs> okay. For, for, yeah, for the actual shoot, um, the makeup woman said, just start using Jergens. It, it'll just look more natural and it'll give you that golden tone and then we'll add on whatever darker makeup we need the day of. So, um, yeah, that's that's how we we were trying to make that look. It's funny when I look at any actress on on in a movie in West Side Story, the latest movie, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, they they were spray tanned. (laughs) Well, so how I mean, when you would come into the makeup chair in the morning, how how long was your transformation? Not long. It was all about the eye makeup and the the contact lenses. Um, You know, I had a blowout bob that sort of stayed that way for weeks and they would spray me and away I went. I mean, it was not a big deal. Those false eyelashes, like, wow. All of just, that. It was, ooh. you know, that that's all it is. It was just, you know, all, all of our eyes came in a box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so I want to ask you one other question about this project. Sure. It's a little vague in terms of was Janine targeted by Roger Ailes at a certain point? And we don't know that. Um, because again, as Shannon was saying, Janine does not fit the mold of the typical Fox women. I think they had an affair. I, I think she. I think she used to stoop uh, Roger Ailes. That's my opinion, though. Okay. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but well, I think they. I think they had an affair. Well, that's what I wanted to get to. Is your decision in that moment as an actor is was she will a willing participant or or was she you know abused by him and just decided like okay that's the cost of having this career i think she comes from a different generation granted these women are a lot younger than she is so as this woman who comes from that generation of man uh, do what the man says you know this this man gave you a career he gave you a job he made you sexy he made you beautiful he gave you 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 have so much so much money now and options and fame and and importance and he gave that to you he's santa claus so it's like why would you poo on santa claus why why would you why would you abuse him why would you why would you you know he's a man men men are like that why would you want to throw him under the uh, under the bus it doesn't make any sense you know what i mean yeah I think yeah. that's where she was coming from. It's a different generation. I what was the what was the vibe on set like shooting this movie? I mean, this was very serious. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. We were not messing around. Obviously, this was a time when Trump was in office, and clearly, you know, the these filmmakers had a lot to say, and they were very, very, you know, um, gung ho about it. But yes, it was it was uh, it was serious. 
it was very serious. I'm interested in that because that um, it gives us a great segue over to a Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. I'm, I'm wondering how the vibe was on that set. Maybe not so serious. Um, and combining both drama and comedy in this role for you, the first scripted series from Bravo, which also brought us the Real Housewives franchise, <laughs> ran from 2014 to 2018. Uh, and was based on the life of self-help guru Vicki Iveen and her best-selling Girlfriend's Guidebooks. And also, I understand, was very personal for um, its creator, showrunner, Marty Noxon, as well. Very sure, cool. yeah. So Lisa Edelstein plays the lead, uh, Abby, as her troubled marriage finally falls apart. And she navigates the process of getting divorced. Um, everything is copy, right. <laughs> sort of writ large across the skyline of L.A., um, also, so it stars you as her hilarious, if somewhat less refined, college friend, Joe, um, as well as Bo Garrett, Nakar Zadigan, uh, and Retta eventually comes on, joins the series um, with with Paul Adelstein, J. August Richards, Patrick Husinger, uh, just to name a few. Yeah. Um, you came into the show, I guess, halfway through the first season, episode eight. I'm interested in what that's like, because you didn't replace Janine Garofalo. But your character fulfills a sort of similar place in the show. What was that like joining midstream? I don't know exactly what happened. I don't think, um, you know, I, I just don't think the show was working for her. So, um, you, you know, she left. And so they needed that new little scrappy friend. And um, and so I thought, OK, so um, let, let's see what I can do here. And they sent me a couple of fun little monologues and the scene where, where she walks in and she catches me having sex with that guy on her couch. And, um, and I thought, Oh, okay, this is, this is fun. This is balls to the wall comedy. This is fun. <laughs> you know, I, I unzipped my pants at the audition and I pretended like I was having sex and I zipping my jeans back up during the scene. And, and I thought, well, I, I guess that it's, it's gotta be loosey goosey. This is, this is that kind of show. And it's about, you know, women let's celebrate. This, this is cool. And uh, lo and behold, yeah, they 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 hired me, and I flew up to Vancouver and met the cast, and those girls were hysterical. I had a blast on that. It does have that flash, right? Like Lisa said, that the one thing you had to make sure of was that the show looked as bravalicious as the rest of them, and it does. But it's also, as I watched it, the drama part of it felt true, mm. really lived and sincere, and often really close to the bone, unflinching comes to mind about a lot of the dialogue. I mean, there's the one scene about the in your first episode, you make a hell of an entrance, first of all. Right. I mean, <laughs> a hell of an entrance from, from literally the moment you walk in. And then you're picking up her kid when they won't take him on the school bus because he told his teacher to eat the corn out of his poop. I mean, <laughs> you guys didn't spare anything in this <laughs> I mean, it's just... I think they're all based on real stories. The creators, the showrunner, everyone, they all have kids. So, and and um, I believe Marty Noxon was going through a divorce during the... Everything was cathartic. Whatever you saw in those episodes was sort of a, a, a cathartic, therapeutic, you know, writing. And, and uh, you know, everything came from some from a real story, I'm pretty sure. Marty is someone who's, uh, I mean, she's a hell of a writer. Awesome. But you had been quoted at one point saying, Marty has this wild ability to create a playground that actors haven't played in before. And I'm wondering if you can sort of elaborate on that in terms of, of, of this show and the cast. Her situations are so original. You know, these, these characters are people that really, mm, I think she's just loves content and she loves layers 
And the, the more complicated the characters are, just when you think they're this way, they're actually this way. It, it's so much fun playing that, obviously, because they're, there's, you know, it's, they're juicy. It's the only way I can explain it. The, the situations are juicy mm. and the characters are, et cetera. Yeah. And you were, um, at least in the final season, very pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah. So how does that affect your your performance? You know, it, it was actually a very, very easy pregnancy. But um, that's how I knew I was having a little boy. I, I had heard that that when you're when you're pregnant with a little boy, the pregnancies tend to be easier for some reason. Hmm. But um, yeah, it was, I was actually okay. I had to, to, to wear a brace underneath my belly to hold all the weight. <laughs> I'm just wondering how, it doesn't sound like it. Maybe if it's an easy pregnancy, you can forget and you're getting into character, but it, just in terms of, you know, basic acting, does that get in the way for you? Not really. Not if you're sitting down pretending to have a cup of coffee and just having a conversation. I can tell you I did have a lot of brain fog. I was like falling asleep in between takes. I was just so tired. I mean, because technically, I, I, I mean, I was in my 40s pregnant. So and I'd never been pregnant before. So, I, you know, it was all kind of sort of a big shock to all of us. He was kind of a miracle baby. And they really did. I mean, the scenes are so conversational. We're always like sitting down having a conversation. So it's not like you're running or, you know, getting shot at or, you know, jump or in a car chase scene or anything like that. It was, if you're going to get pregnant on any show, let it be girlfriend's guy, because, you know, you, everyone's just sitting around pretending to drink wine and gossiping. And have you, has that, um, has it lived on, you think? I mean, since it ended, does it have a legacy as a show? Because you were pushing some boundaries um, before some others. You know, every, every, every woman in her thirties and forties, I, I would get approached by and said they loved the show. It was, you know, it's, it's one of those shows where look, sex in the city went off the air mm -hmm. and, and people wanted that, that group of girlfriends that did naughty things. Some, some people were going through a divorce, you know, they weren't the best moms. They made mistakes. They, you know, had one night stands and, you know, all of that, all of the messiness of what it is to be single in your forties newly is what we expanded on. And I think that's something that a lot of women could relate to. Amen. Over here in this corner. <laughs> also, I have a really close friend of mine was going through a divorce when the show, when the show was announced. Um, and I remember her talking a lot about this notion of having to carry around a stigma. Like her marriage just didn't work out. No one cheated. There was no abuse. Um, and people would look at her like, well, what did you do? And I remember her saying, um, you know, she, we were both kind of interested to see where this show was going to go. And I think it did sort of start to pick that apart a little bit, at least for women. Oh, the pressure of thinking that you did something wrong and they did something wrong and then having to relive the story over and over again to people that don't know what's going on with you. It's, 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 it's a mess. It's a mess. Well, so five seasons on that show. Um, I'm going to use that as a as an odd segue into the next project, which I'm imagining you probably spent a few years on, um, if if history is any indication. So, yeah, um, this is a Disney Pixar film, Coco, which was released in 2017, directed by Lee Unkrich and Adrian Molina, who also wrote the script with Matthew Aldrich and Jason Katz. Uh, it stars you, Anthony Gonzalez, Gael Garcia Bernal, Benjamin Bratt, 
Rene Victor, Edward James Almost, the great Edward James Almost, uh, and of course, Pixar mainstay, John Ratzenberger. <laughs> um, he's literally in every Pixar movie. Um, so set in the midst of uh, Mexico's Dia de los Muertos holiday, Coca tells the story of a young boy who dreams of becoming a musician. And his family has this sort of mysterious objection that goes back generations to anybody being a musician or being a singer. Um, and in the process of sort of defying their plans for him to join the family business, uh, he finds himself in the land of the dead, searching for his long lost relative and sort of the beginning of that mystery or the, or the yeah, the start of that mystery. Um, so I'm curious, how long were you involved, first of all, in Coco? During hiatus for Girlfriend's Guide, I was back home and I, I got the audition via email and I didn't know what the movie was about. It seemed like, I don't know, this character was mad that her picture wasn't somewhere. I, I <laughs> like, what? where is she? What's this woman doing? Okay. She's older. She's sort of, she's the, the grandmother of the family. And that's all I knew. And I was doing it over and over again. And my husband overheard me uh, practicing and he popped his head and I'll never forget it. And he was like, Alana. I said, what? She was, he said, she's dead. She's dead. It's the afterlife. Trust me. It's, it's gotta be. And I said, oh, 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 now we're, now we're making sense. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I sent in my, my, uh, my tape and uh, Lee called me in to uh for me to go in actually in person and record it again and we had a wonderful conversation and got along famously he's such a sweetheart and then from that uh from that day on um you know we had set recordings over at i was flown out to the pixar headquarters in emeryville and there you would record and we would be all alone it's a very solitary experience you're you're all alone you're not working with the other actors and they don't give you the entire script. So you're you're only given the scenes you're in. Huh. Okay, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I really did. I had no idea truly what the entire movie was going to look like until it was out. Wow. How do you, I mean, that brings my next question into even sharper focus. How do you, how's the process of getting into this character different when you're off camera, especially in this case as an old woman? Not to mention in a booth by herself. Well, it's so funny. I, I reading the dialogue. She's so sassy, and I thought, oh, okay, she's sassy, but yet this is Disney. So let's make her. You know what I mean? And and you know when you read all of the character, all of the scenes back to back, it's pretty easy to figure out who she is. You know what I mean? So by the third or fourth recording, they brought me into this little room, and they had. They had finally tiny little sculptures of the characters. Ah. And so once I saw the style that they were going for, I thought, oh my God, this is really special. Whatever I'm a part of, this is cool. This is insane. This is gonna be, this is gonna be really important. What whatever, whatever happens, blah, blah, blah. And and sure enough, it really was something very unique. So we we hear in sort of the the making of these Pixar movies that they're I mean, at the end of the credits, you see Pixar babies because the, the movies have been taken four or five years to get made. From the time that you came on to play Mama Imelda, how, what was the evolution of that? In other words, I know you said you sort of only got your scenes, but would they sort of give you a brief when you got up there and say, okay, here's what's happening that's a little different? Or 
where you just sort of like get in the booth and just do the lines? Well, Lee is is incredibly eloquent, obviously. And so he would sort of set up the the story as far as what the, the character's journey was was going through. It's like, you know, your your great great grandson is wanting to do what you were once in love with. And this is this is what this scene is about, essentially. So I would act it out and they would actually film me acting it out and recording my voice at the same time so that the uh, animators could get sort of the the uh, emotion behind whatever was being said for all of the characters. And mind you, by the time we finished recording, I was very pregnant and unable to fly. So they came out to the Warner Brothers studios to record me singing La Llorona. We were also in a hurry because the little boy was going through puberty while we were <laughs> okay. filming. Voice dropping. <laughs> yeah, and they were so afraid his voice would change. So we were in a hurry. It, it was it was like, you know, we, we, we had to uh, get things done right away. Now, had you had you sung in, in when you were doing theater before? Or was that something that was like, oh, boy, I'm going to have to figure this out? I had. Uh, yeah, it was it was. Uh, you know, if you want to go to New York and you want to be on stage, you probably sh- you should probably take some singing lessons. And so that's that's basically what it was. You know, as a child actor, it's like, okay, if you want to be a child actor, you got to take dance and singing and tap dancing. And you know, <laughs> right? There's always that. There's an extra level to it, though, right? Because this, I mean, for people who haven't seen the film, uh, you could watch the film and you would not know that you're listening to Alana. The voice is. I want to say a little bit huskier. A little, uh, it's an know. old woman. Yeah. I mean, it's it's astonishing. It's astonishing. Yes, she is an old woman. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what are you doing right there? Can you describe what you're doing right there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you, you talked about using your aunt before. So so was there anybody in, the, in your family that, that inspired Imelda? Uh, yeah, my, my she, definitely my Tia Flora. If you really pay attention to the, the it's it's kind of the same voice in Meet the Fox. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. It's just, it's just one's a drama and one's, a, you know, a comedy. So it's, it's really- hooray! I'm just gonna say over here, hooray for amazing, charismatic life of the party aunts. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. She's in the afterlife right now. I mean, but living on, obviously, wow. I mean, obviously, had a huge impact on you. Oh yeah, no, you have to, you have to keep these people living and celebrate them that's uh that's life that's the movie <laughs> it's literally the movie the, the uh <laughs> the the ofrendas you know and things like that and putting putting the picture we were talking about it um this idea that when the last person who remembers you is gone then that then that's it um and it's a pretty wild thing to present in a movie that is ostensibly for for kids yeah um which is that, yeah, it's just cool. And it's a phenomenal performance. Obviously, the movie, for people that don't know, uh, won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. It's a huge part of the Disney legacy now. And also because, I mean, right now we have Encanto from, from Disney, but this was kind of the first movie to present Latino people in, in, uh, in Disney history. Yes. We had been under a microscope for quite some time, um, especially under the Trump administration, mm. and to, to allow people to learn about a culture that's actually quite sophisticated, very sophisticated. 
you know, the art, Mexican art is beautiful. And yes, Frida Kahlo, she, she was so important, such an incredible historical figure in that, you know, it's not all about sugar skulls and, and tacos. Well, and also in the, the film makes a point that uh, Mexican culture in particular is a matriarchal uh, culture. Yes. It's the women that are running everything in, you know, in the society and the film. And I think it presents it in a really beautiful way. I think so. Can I grab that? Because that's a good, I'd love you to get you to go back a little bit. I'm, I mean, Mama Imelda is literally, she's the conflict and the turning point in the film. She's, I mean, arguably a lead role in my estimation of it. Um, why didn't they give you the whole script to read? I, I would think that you would need to know her place in the story. Would you have any idea why they do it that way? That's a really good question. I have a feeling that they, 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 um, at one point, maybe they were giving scripts out and a script got leaked. The storyline got uh. leaked in some way, shape or form. And they thought, oh, we'll never do that again. You know, a lot of times, especially nowadays, you guys, because of the Internet, um, everything is is Fort Knox. I didn't read the the entire script of Bombshell. But these are how? I mean, I'm a screenwriter. I cannot imagine. You, every word they need to read every word. How can they do that to you as a performer? <laughs> You know, I mean, I... Uh, it's batshit. <laughs> hey, I, I did not read the entire script of Legally Blonde when I did it. I just thought, you know what? If I read the entire script of Legally Blonde, I'm going to drive myself crazy. <laughs> because my character has nothing to do with... My character is only in Kansas. Once she leaves Kansas and goes into Munchkin Land and Emerald City, I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to put my Auntie M and 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 you know stay in my fucking lane. Well, in that in in that in that case, yes. But I but I you know I I agree with Shannon. I'm sure you agree that obviously Imelda is, is an incredibly pivotal piece um, yeah. of of this story. And also, I mean, just to go back to something you said earlier about sort of being in the booth alone, you know, that on, on some of the films, I mean, there's footage of uh, Billy Crystal and John Goodman on Monsters, Inc., which I should say you're also part of uh, Monsters yeah. now on Disney Plus. Yeah. Um, but they let them work together. Uh, so I'm Did just I, I, yeah, yeah, there's footage of them. I mean, they're not in the same booth at the same time, but they they're in, you know, listening to each other and separate booths or whatever so that they can sort of riff. I mean, I would imagine maybe they're doing more improv. I don't know. But um, is 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 it when you're in that situation and you get in the booth, is somebody reading you the other the other roles? It was Lee. It was Lee behind me reading the, the role of the little boy. OK. It, you know, in, if, if I think John Goodman and Billy Crystal may have said, look, this movie is all about the relationship between these two. The bro ship. So right. put us in the booth next to each other so I can feed off of his reflections. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And they were right. You know, uh, but a lot of the times, you know, if you've if you've done a, a ton of voiceover work, you don't need the other actor trying to drink. You don't. You really don't. Mm. When there's no room for you to improvise, it really doesn't make a difference. I mean, it's it doesn't hurt the, the performance whatsoever. Even, you know, if an actor wants to go home and they're off camera and I'm talking to them off camera, look, I already have a substitution for who they are and they're not the actor playing that character. They're they're my sister, Athena, or my mom, Sidna, or they're, they're you know, someone I, I hated back in kindergarten. So look, you can leave. 
you know, I think it's maybe all of those years of auditioning mm. where you really don't have the luxury of having that person in front of you ever. Right. So you really have to use substitutions. And I think that, you know, it's substitutes. Substitutions are just as good as the person being in the same room with you. It really, I mean, that's how I work. It doesn't, you know. Well, okay. So exactly right there. That's how you work. I'm just wondering if that means that you in particular are, are cut out for voicing animated roles and not every actor is because I would know some actors who would be like, no way. (laughs) You know, I need the energy. I need the other person, especially for an animated role, especially if you don't have the rest of the script. (laughs) You know, way back when, way back when we were all in the room together and it was a lot of fun because it was a big, huge party. But because of scheduling, it got really, really hard to get everyone in the room together at once. So because of scheduling, that was the biggest reason why voiceover evolved into being a very solitary um, art form, you know, but uh, before that it was not, it wasn't. Doing it now where you're, you know, I, I don't know if you're doing it in LA or you go back to Emeryville, but you're doing Monsters at Work. Is it the same again? Or are you, are you not yeah. with any of those well, I'm all alone. Wow. I have no idea. <laughs> Wow. I've never met anyone. I've never met Billy Crystal or John Goodman or anyone. Wow. We've never met each other. It's very odd um, to think that, you know, you're in these movies with people and you've never met them before. <laughs> we hadn't planned to talk about it, but you're doing, is it three characters on Monsters at Work? There's a bunch of uh, little characters that I do. Um, and as we were going, th- you know, through season one, there were a couple of characters here and there and they're like, would you be able to do the receptionist? Let, let's listen to what you have. And I said, well, what does she look like? And they'll, you know, send me a little, a picture of what she looks like. Oh, okay. She would sound like this, you know, or, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so much, these characters are so cute on that show. Yeah. And it's such a wink to the adults watching that that's been a hell of a lot of fun. It's a really adorable show. I've watched all of it. Um, you know, you. This is something else that you do pretty frequently. I mean, you did uh, Rango for Gore Verbinski. Yeah. Um. You you did four voices in that. I, I think. He's um, he's coming out with something on Netflix really soon. I don't know if I can really talk about that, but he and I have been working uh, together for the past year on something really cool. You guys, it takes place on another planet. I'll leave it at that. It's it's like Sergeant Pepper. As a cartoon, maybe as 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 an a- animated um, project, it's really it, it is it is a, a feast for the eyes and the ears, to say the least. Yeah, he's kind of a genius, Gore. He's awesome. This I just want to sort of wind it back to something that you said when you were when you were really little, maybe even five six years old, that you were a good mimic. Yeah. Do you sort of look back at that little girl who was probably, you know, doing impressions of your dad in the living room to where you are now, where you're literally creating characters and finding ways to twist and turn your voice and just think like I'm I'm doing I'm I'm in my dream. I'm in my five year old dream. I live in my dream. Yeah. Look, my my mom and dad were always fighting. The only way I could get them to shut up was pretending to be them fighting. <laughs> you are actively scarring me as you fight. They it would it would make them laugh, and then they'd make up, and everything would be okay. So that was sort of my role in the family was to make everyone laugh. The only way I could make everyone laugh is by pretending to be them. People love watching themselves. <laughs> when I went to Strasbourg, I was like, oh my god, there's a, this this is there's an actual art form to this. 
um, you know, I had, I had such great teachers making all of us feel like, like, um, you know, it, it was okay to, to trust our instincts. Mm, definitely. You know? Um, okay. So one more thing for me, um, you spend all this time doing Coco mm-hmm. and you never read the script. You got only your scenes or your sides. And now you go to the cinema and you look at this movie. And I want to know what is it like to sit down at that premiere or sit down in the cinema with with an audience full of kids and see your character come to life in that way with all the color and all the lights. I mean, what was it, Shannon? How many... How many literal pinpoints of lights were in one shot? I like, think that when they started out for that one shot, they wanted to have seven million lights. We read in that in yeah. the in the when you first see the world of the land of the dead. Oh yeah. So so just tell tell us a little bit about what what that experience is like. I was invited to a screening at Disney uh, at the Disney Studios. Josh Gad um, invited his daughter's class to go and watch the movie. So it was a part of their field trip. So I was so excited to see Josh Gad and meet him. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna watch. You're gonna watch your movie with Olaf. Yes, because that was the opening movie, um, and and it was the new uh, Frozen. It was like a short or something. So we watched that, and then as as soon as Coco came on, I I uh, you know the first time you're just so nervous and and you want everything to be perfect and your character to be to sound good, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But um, I, I couldn't help but lose myself in it and watch it as an audience member. I, I, mm. I forgot, I forgot my role in, 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 in what I was watching. It was, it was uh, really, that's magic. Uh, unbelievable. I was, I was sort of busy. That's just well, magic. there is no, I mean, Mama Imelda really does know her place in the family, whether she had the screenplay in front of her or not. So that comes through. It's, <laughs> it's your movie, man. I mean, it's all of your movie, but you really do own it when it's your turn. Well, it just goes to show you that whatever you're playing in, in whatever script it is, if it, you know, your scenes are your scenes and, and that, that, that's it. And, and everyone else, you know, obviously that, that character wouldn't know what was going on in other scenes, <laughs> you know, right. uh, so that you, you know, if you look at it that way, it, it does, it, it does make a lot of sense. All right. Well, before we let you go, um, we wanted to just touch on Legally Blonde. Um, I, I mean, I asked I asked my 14-year-old niece yesterday whether she'd seen this movie. And she goes, yeah, of course I have. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, considering that she wasn't, no, not, was not alive when it was made. Here it comes 20 years later, um, <laughs> directed by Robert Luketic, his first major studio film. Yeah. Written by by the Ten Things I Hate About You team of Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith, adapted. I didn't know this. I hate to say it. Hides eyes. I didn't know it was adapted from a novel um, by Amanda Brown. Yeah. So here comes Elle Woods and Company again. We hear, or we've been hearing for years. Jessica Caulfield, Jennifer Coolidge. I don't know whether Selma Blair will be back. Matthew Davis, Luke Wilson, Victor Garber in the first one. Even a cameo from Raquel Welch in that movie. Um, <laughs> so 20 years later, I, it, it can still be seen as ahead of its time and sadly very prescient. And um, I'm just interested, other than the whole nostalgia movement that seems to be happening in our industry right now, what what do you think is, um, you know, why is there an appetite for a third one such a huge while after number one and two? I, I think it... Because it is a woman finally being understood 
and finally being accepted for everything she is and 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 uh and knowing that she doesn't have any limitations the world is her oyster where will she be in 20 years i mean that is a character that you would really want to see what happened to Elle Woods after she graduated after, you know, does she, does she divorce Luke Wilson's character? Where is she in her forties? I think it's a hilarious concept. I think it's funny. (laughs) And her best friends for that matter. Where are her best friends? (laughs) Yes. Have people been asking you about this? It's been in development for, for a couple years now. I, I have no idea what uh, what they have planned for it. Um, I, I wish I was a fly on the wall in these meetings. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Well, I have a I have two parting questions for you. Sure. Do you do any impressions? I mean, you're mimic, and you've done the characters with Ian. Do you do you do any impressions of uh, of people we know? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, who? Uh, it, it really depends on who. Um... <laughs> You have to get me drunk to, to for me to do all those impressions. Well, that's I mean, I'm I'm in awe of people who can do that, who can just change into someone else. I mean, like Sean does Eddie Murphy for crying out loud. And like, don't you do Gilbert Gottfried too? You know, I did a Disney movie too. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I played a parrot in Aladdin. Oh! That's so good! <laughs> <laughs> I had to go way off mic for that one. Way off mic. It's amazing to me how you guys do. I'm sure. I'm sure the levels, Shannon, your levels were going really bouncing on that one. Oh my God! Are you kidding? Me? <laughs> oh, awesome. Ar- Arnold's in the house. I had a friend of mine who does a really good Michael. Um, not Keaton. Michael Douglas. Sorry. Really. He called the governor. He pretended to be Michael Douglas, and it was. I want to bring my wife, Catherine, over. To uh, to talk about politics <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger was like Michael. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> years and years ago, I did get a friend. Well, I don't know if they kept the table, but I got a friend a table at Shotzi on Main there in uh, Venice by calling them up and pretending I was Arnold. Oh, that's great! Listen, I have some friends. They're gonna come down there. Make sure they get a good table and seat them near the windows. <laughs> Phenomenal. That is phenomenal. Better than Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's fun to do. Okay, listen, listen, I have a question for you, one more and going. Um, is there anything you have not done yet that you want to do that you're like, why hasn't anybody called me for this? Or or in particular, anyone you want to work with who you haven't worked with yet? Wow, what a great question. Um, putting you right on the spot. Mm. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I'd love to work with Darren Aronofsky. I think oh. he's phenomenal. Um I've always wanted to be in a really disturbing horror film. Mm. I love horror films. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> and yeah, that's it for now. I'd really like to do Broadway one of these days. Ooh, I want to see that. Yeah, me too. That would be fun. Stretch my chaps. Stretch my chaps. I mean, they're pretty stretched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say. This has been just been such a treat. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your spirit. You asked the great questions. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a bloody honor. Thank you so much, you guys. Characters dedicated to the memory of our friend Drago Sumanja, whose life and work inspire ours. The show is produced by us, Shannon edits our episodes. With technical and occasionally moral support from our sound wizard, Tim Skog. And we still can't believe we get to say our original score was composed by Academy Award winner Dario Marianelli. If you enjoy character, put in a good word for us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Between episodes, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, at PodCharacter, for the latest on our guests, past and future episodes, and more characters we love. Till next time, thanks for listening. 